Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Episcopal Church in Vero Beach, Florida. We are glad to have you join us. The Essential 100 Bible Study, also known as E100, is led by Father Christopher Rodriguez. This study is an overview of the Bible that guides you through 50 Old Testament and 50 New Testament stories. Upon completion of the study, you will have received the big picture of God's Word. Today we are going to talk about um, Abram, who later on, changes God changes his name to Abraham, right? Abram is, a, is an important dude in the Bible. Um, and for a lot of reasons, but I want to show you something today. If you, uh, last week we talked about the Tower of what? Babel. Babel. And if you remember the Tower of Babel, what was, the, what was the problem why God was upset with the Babel builders? What did they do? There was two big things which, which made God frustrated and angry with the Babel builders and caused him to uh, confuse their language. Anybody remember what those two things were? Sorry? They didn't go out. Right, Sally said they didn't go out. Remember, God said in Genesis, go out, be fruitful and multiply, right? And they built a tower. And they built a tower to reach God on their terms, right? Now, the second one is what most people are aware of. They were trying to be like God, which is a fair statement. And it's actually the recurring sin for everybody, including you, wanting to be like God. Um, but the second thing is that they didn't go out and be, they were, they were un, it's an important theme, uh, you'll see in a, in a moment. When they built a Tower of Babel, what they were doing is they were actually kind of got comfortable, right? And they, they neglected God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You with me? So you will see repeatedly, again, this, this whole class is about themes, meta-narratives in Scripture. And one thing you will see repeatedly over and over again is a call to go out and the people that actually do it receive blessing, and the ones that don't do it, don't receive blessing. Does that make sense? Okay. Let me show you one quick thing. Today we're going to look at, um, we're looking at Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 through chapter 12, verse 20, and we're going to talk about Abram. Before we talk about Abram, we're going to talk about a guy named Terah. And before we talk about Terah, we're going to talk again about a guy named Shem. And before Shem, we're going to talk about a guy named who? Noah. So, Remember, one thing you begin to see in the Old Testament is that God works through a series of covenants. Remember we talked about a covenant is a promise. It's a one-way, well, usually one-way promise from God. If you do this, then this. I'm sorry, I retract that. Not if you do this, then this, but rather, I'm going to do this for you. Okay, so if you remember back to Genesis chapter 6, which we just read, God made a covenant with... Noah, right, because Noah was the only guy on the whole earth that wasn't a train wreck. Um, and so Noah has, God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Noah, and you're what? Son. Your sons. Okay, great. So then Noah has three sons. One of them is named Shem, okay, right? And then Shem has a, guy, has a son named Terah. You with me? And then Terah, <laughs> I should have had him. Terah has a son named Abram. So what I'm, the reason I'm telling you all this is I want you to see something really important, that God works through covenants in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he works through covenants that are, that are then transmitted through uh, patriarchal lineage, right? 
usually through the firstborn, but not always. In this case, remember, God made a covenant with Noah, and we're now, you know, five chapters later, and quite a bit of period of time later, it has gone from Noah to Shem to Terah to Abram. You with me? Okay. That, again, is another recurring theme. So two recurring themes we're going to look at tonight is that God blesses those who go out, right? And also that God maintains a covenant, in this case, through a patriarchal lineage, right? The, the father to son to son to son. You with me? Okay. So let's look at this Terah business a minute, and then we're going we're to move into Abram. Um, let's look at Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 through 32. Now, these are the generations of who? Terah. One thing I've not told you yet, before we get a little further, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to not only teach you guys the stories of the Bible, but teach you how to read it. So when you come across certain things, you'll recognize the, the device and the text as something important. I've not told you this yet, but I'm going to now. There's something which you see in Scripture over and over again called a toledot, toledot. Anybody, anybody heard that before? No. Okay, simple. When you are a writer in the 3rd century BC of... Uh, when you're writing the Old Testament texts, one of the ways they would illustrate this chapter, a new chapter is beginning, or a new meta-narrative story is beginning, is with something called a Toledo, right? And it goes just like this. Now, these are the generations of Terah. If you're a Jew, reading that, you go, oh, okay, we're starting the Terah story. Make sense? So that the for, it's called a Toledo formula, and you see it over and over and over again in, in the Old Testament, that now these are the generations of X. That's telling you the story is now shifted and zeroing in on this guy, Terah, and why he's important. With me? So again, as you read the Old Testament, when you see these are the generations of, blah, it's important. Okay. Now these are the generations, Toledo, of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. We'll get to him in a minute. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. So Terah had settled in Ur, right, and raised his boy Abram. And Abram took, and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. You're getting feedback here. Now, Sarah was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and, the, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. And when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. There's a lot in there. Uh, it sounds clunky. You've got to kind of read it slowly. But two things I want to point out to you, because they're, be, they're going to come up later. The first thing is, uh, Terah, what does Terah do that makes him different from the people that were Babel people? He goes out. Well, for a little while he does, but then he lands at a place called Canaan, and then they settle there. Okay? And it's actually interesting. It says they settled there, and the next thing you hear is, Terah's a goner. Now, it doesn't mean he died right away. It just be means once he settled, the Terah story is concluded. He might have lived 20, we don't know how long he lived after that, but once he stops moving, 
the his, his, his importance in the story is concluded. Does that make sense? It's an important detail. Don't miss it. It's a nuance, but it's in there. A few things you need to know. Abram, uh, so Abram has a brother named Haran, and uh, uh, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran then dies. We don't know why. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. We don't know why he died, but Haran is El Muerte. And we know that Haran had a son named Lot, right? We find out later, uh, we've, as, we, as the story kind of rolls along, we read that um, Haran had Lot, Haran's dead, and then Abram has a wife named Sarah, but she is unable to have children. Now, um, the uh, Jews practiced something called primogeniture, which meant that the firstborn son got the rights of the estate. So if you're Abram and you have no kids and you have no son, you're in a bit of a pickle, right? So just understand that, that this is setting up the, uh, the challenge which is to come. God had, Sarah is barren, Sarah is barren, she had no child, but Abram marries her and they, uh, they settle in Haran. You with me? Okay, it's a little bit of backstory, but it's important to know the family dynamics of what is going on. Sarai is unable to have children, and that's an important detail as you'll see in a moment. Any questions so far? Am I going too fast? Okay. All right. Now, Terah is dead. He lived 205 years. We're not going to get into that today, whether it's 205 years literally or whatever. But for sake of argument, uh, Terah lives 205 years, and then chapter 12, verse 1, the story shifts. Ready? Now the Lord said to Abram, chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went. <laughs> Let's just stop there. Um, do you know anything about, what do you think Abram did for a living? He was a sheep, right, raised, raised animals, right? Shepherd, or maybe he was a farmer, right? But in any event, he's not, he's not on the web, right, doing consulting work for a firm in New York City. He is tied to what? The land. the land, which these people are all tied to the land. And so God says to Abram, which is actually really, really important here. He says to Abram, Abram, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. Notice something important here. If you're a Jew in that period of time, your country is your people, your tribe, who you identify with as a culture. Uh, your kindred are your family, which is extremely important. There's no, um, there's no one to care for you if your family's not around. That's why honor your father and your mother to say such a high priority in the Ten Commandments, for example. And then God says, and go to the land that I will show you. And then God says, I will bless you, and I'll make you a great nation, and I'll make, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. You know what? Can I ask you a question? Would you have done that? Would you go on? God is saying to Abram, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, Abram, yeah. What do you got, Lord? Okay, 
I want you to go give up absolutely everything you rely upon for your uh, security and identity and sustenance. I want you to give up uh, everything that's familiar to you. I want you to give up even the way you raise your family and go, and oh, by the way, I'll tell you when you get there. What do you think of that? Crazy. Crazy. But here's the thing. Remember the dynamic, what I mentioned to you a minute ago. What's one of the things which characterizes the people that are faithful to the Lord? What do they do? Obey. They move and they go. And I want you to understand something here. This might seem like ancient history and what does that have to do with my life? It has a lot to do with your life because you will... Look at what it says, the Lord said to Abram, this is the word of God saying, Abram, do this. You and I have the word of God here. It's no different, right? You and I have the word of God here, and when it says, do this, it doesn't always tell you why, and it's a lot of times not easy, and a lot of times very confusing. But when God tells you this is the deal, you've got one or two options. You can say, you know, Lord, thanks, but no thanks, or, you can, as Abram, Abram went. And so the point I want you to see here is that for God's plan, God says, Abram, I want you to get up and leave all your stuff and go, and I'll bless you. What is God relying upon for that blessing to occur? God, yeah, Abram has to obey God for the blessing to occur. So it's, God promises Abram, I will do this for you, but you gotta trust me and you gotta act. And for the blessing to come true, Abram's got to get off the stick and go. Let me make a point. Uh, a lot of people think of faith as, as Tim Keller used to say, an intellectual assent to a truth claim. I love that, very Presbyterian. Most people think of faith as an intellectual assent to a truth claim, right? I believe in God. Yeah, great. The demons do also, right? Scripture says, you believe in God? James, you believe in God? Great. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Faith in God does not just mean an intellectual assent to a truth claim. It doesn't just mean, oh yeah, I believe that. No. It means I believe it, and I'm willing to, and it also, the word for faith in Greek is the word, I'll write it in English for you, the word pistis, and it means trust. Okay? So faith is not an emotion, it is not an intellectual assent to a truth claim, it's trusting in God and doing what he says to do, being obedient. Does that make sense, everyone? So faith is not just agreeing to something, to a set of propositions, it's actually trusting that what God tells you is true and doing what he tells you to do and waiting for further instruction. Does that make sense? And it, does that relate to anybody here by chance, maybe? I hope, I hope so. <laughs> Um, can you think of a time in your life when you were wrestling with something, good or bad, and you weren't sure what to do? Did you go here or ask somebody who knew what this says and say, hey, what does the Bible say I should do in this situation? Because if you don't know what this says, then you're not going to know what God's telling you to do and you won't know to do it. Right? And if you don't know what this says, okay, fine, lots of people don't. Come talk to me or ask Father Gritter, ask somebody who knows Scripture enough to point it to you and say, hey, maybe, maybe think about this as a way to move forward while the events kind of unfold. The point I want you to see here is that Abram is given no information, and yet he still goes. And another thing interesting too, um, which we haven't been told yet, 
is that God says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. And you're all, he says, I will bless those who bless you. You'll be a blessing. And all and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Can I point out a really obvious problem here? His wife is barren. And the dude's 75 years old. Not that that's necessarily a problem, but... It could be. But it could be. He is certainly not a vibrant 22-year-old man with, uh, you know, with a lot of energy and zippity-pow. In the context, he's an he's a old man. Modern day, not so much, but back then, 75 is pretty high up there. But the point I want you to see here, so not only does God not give him a whole, not only does God say, let, it, let go of everything, Abram, and do what I tell you to do, the, the, the claim, the promise itself is ridiculous. Right? It's absurd. But so is the claim, which I'm going to talk about this Sunday, that Jesus promises us that when he returns, the dead are resurrected and we reign forever with him in glory. That's absurd too. But if it's true, <laughs> if it comes from God's word, it's true. And therefore, even though it might be a stretch to think of it, it can be relied upon because it's God's word. Does that make sense, everyone? So you have to make a decision at some point in your life. Am I going to trust what, the, what scripture says or not? And if I'm going to trust it, Am I gonna, am I go, I might not know exactly what it means all the time, but if I'm going to trust it, am I going to actually do what it says to do or not do what it says to do? Any comments or observations there? Any questions? Um, the, the, what I want to impart to you here in this one little nugget here is just how, how, how radical this call of Abraham really is and how, um, how God's covenant worked through that family lineage to Abram and how Abram now has put on the seat. Abram, are you going to do it or not? Um, you know, you've heard of a girl named Mary, right? Miriam of Nazareth. 13-year-old uh, girl, 12, 13, 14, right in there. Not very old. Uh, the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, hey, Mary, I got an idea. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Uh, he says, Mary, I got an idea. Um, or not an idea. I got, I got an idea. Well, the Lord has chosen you to bear the Son of God. And she says, wait a minute. I, 13 and I'm a virgin. How can this be? And God says to her, the Holy Spirit is going to do this in you and he's going to come, show, show upon you and you will have a son and you will name him Yeshua, Jesus, which means God saves, by the way. Uh, and, you will, he will, and he will be great. And what does she say? Oh, that can't possibly be true. I'm a virgin, you know, and after all, I don't, I don't know. She, says, oh, she says, let it be to me, a, her, the Greek um, uh, construction is, let it be to me according to your word, which I told you, I think I told you guys, maybe it was the adult forum, according to your word means I'm, I am believing what you're saying to me, even though it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I'm believing you because what you've said to me, even though this has kind of blown my mind, according to your word, according to the fact that I trust you. Consider this, what if Mary had said no? What if Abram had said no? Well, that's, that's again, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, we, don't, we don't know, right? God chose Abram. But here, and again, this is the, another, another recurring theme you see in Scripture over and over again. God's providence and omniscience. He picked Abram for no particular reason. Abram has a choice to make. God does not override his free will. Abram could have been like, yo, man, Ur of the Chaldeans is great. I got all this stuff. I'm staying. 
Thanks, Yahweh, but no thanks. He could have, but he doesn't. And the point I want you to see here, imagine, just imagine, the level of responsibility that God puts on you and I, right, to, to follow the call. Think of it like this. Think of all your friends that don't know Jesus, right? And maybe you're the only person that they know that has a relationship with the Lord. If you don't tell them about it, who will, right? So in other words, we all have to act and, and be willing to respond to the Lord's call on our lives. So any, any observations or questions on that? It's, it's easy to put the book aside and uh, obey based on what the book is saying. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, Bill, can well, you repeat that, please? When, when we're studying people who have a direct dialogue with, with God, right. um, that's, that's somewhat different than being uh, following the message in the, in the book. That's a good op that's a it's easy to set the book aside and go on with your life. That's right. That's a good point. Let me comment on Bill said basically when, when you have somebody who gets a direct word from the Lord, as Abram did, or Mary, as through the angel Gabriel, uh, that's harder to uh, if I can paraphrase for you, Bill, that's harder to not act on that than it is to just take the book and put it aside, right? Because we're getting it through a Bible, a book, Bill says uh, is it possible that it's easier to discard scripture than an actual theophany, God speaking to you? Um, maybe so, but let me, let me comment on that. That's a, you're kind of making an implied point there, and I want to shine some light on it. Um, there is no difference between the word that Abram received from God and this. I'm going to say that again. There is no difference from what Abram received from God and this. And in fact, I would submit to you something the opposite, maybe. If I heard something from the Lord that said to me, hey, get up and go to Vero Beach, I'm kidding, get up, get up and go somewhere, am I going to maybe question my sanity? Or question if I heard it? Or maybe, maybe. This is objective. This is a resource you can't really, you can say it, you can say I refuse to believe it, that's fine, but you can't refuse what it says. Does that make sense? I wonder, so let me kind of turn it around just to think about it. If this is the word of God, which it is, um, maybe it's easier to follow this than if God gave you a theophany. I don't know. Good question. But, but, but the point I do want to make, though, the point I want to, and I'll get to you in a second, Ann. The, do, the point I do want to make is that this as the word of God and that as the word of God is the same. Ann. Well, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit, if you go to the New Testament, right. I do think that there are times that you have very strong inclinations and it comes back to you several times. And the only thing we can do if we're trying to follow what the Bible says right. is to act on it. That's right. And so sometimes it's not absolutely correct, but I've found over time that it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Act on it and it might seem stupid. Yeah, Anne's point is, we, if you fast forward to the Holy Spirit, which we have the gift of, which actually Abram doesn't have yet, so we're actually in a better position than he was, uh, to have the gift of the Holy Spirit working in, on, and through you, if the Holy Spirit speaks through you, if you're reading scripture and something leaps off the page at you, or really resonates, you've had that happen to you before, I'm sure, uh, and saying we have to then follow what that says. A lot of times when I do Bible studies, I don't do it here, but in the, at the adult forum I frequently do it, we read through the whole text, right, front to back, and what's the first thing I say, anybody has been there? Anything jump out at you? 
right? And the reason I'm asking you that question is because frequently, if you're reading the text and the Lord really wants to dial you in on a particular point, it'll just come right off the page at you. It does for me. And if you're willing to go, well, that's weird. Maybe it's not. That. Maybe it's what God the Lord wants you to pre or wants you to think about. This coming Sunday, you know, actually a little side note, when I decide what I'm going to preach on for the week, I read through all the lessons for the week, and then I find out, I look for the one little nugget that jumps out at me that just either is confusing or it's ridiculous or something, and that's what I preach on every week. So this week, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that we're going to meet Jesus in the air. So stay, stay tuned for that. <laughs> Bob. Right. So we, we sort of get both sides of it, and what happens to those that don't follow it, it's sort of, you know, sooner or later they follow it. Yeah, that's a good point. Bob says there's lots of examples of people in the Bible that don't follow it. Judas, for example, I mean, he's a bad example. Peter is a better example. Peter, one who is not obedient to the Lord, right, who rejects him, but he, he, uh, he finally comes around, doesn't he? And the Lord accepts him because of his repentance, right? It's actually, that's actually a little worth maybe saying that the difference between Judas and Peter is that Judas ref refused to seek mercy from the Lord, whereas Peter did. Repentance. So anyway, let's move on. So verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all the possessions they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to the go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed to the land, to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. The reason that those details are in there is the writer, Moses, is being extremely deliberate as to where he was. Okay? At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So part of the problem with the promised land is people live there already, which we get to later in Joshua. Um, verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Let me stop there a moment, because we're, we're going to see this again. Uh, that word for offspring, what do you th when you read that in English, what do you think of for offspring? Children. Children, right? Now, again, Abram is 75 years old. His wife can't have kids. Uh, it's, again, to you, I will give, to your offspring, I will give this land. Here's an interesting thing, which we're going to see again later. That word for offspring is actually singular. So when it talks about offspring, it's actually not talking about offsprings. It's not talking about progeny. It's talking about offspring, but it's, a, it's an individual. Jesus. Well, yes, they don't know that. Yeah, it's Jesus. That's right. Janie says, it's Jesus. It's always Jesus, Janie Binion. <laughs> it's a Bible study. But you're right. And we see this again when, when God and Abram make a, when Abram makes a covenant with, when God makes a covenant with Abram later, and they split the animal in two, God says, I am making a covenant with you and your offspring forever. And again, it's singular. Now, we don't, Abram doesn't know who that offspring is, that person, but we do, right? And his name is Jesus. And the point I'm trying to make is that whenever you see covenants in the Old Testament, it's not God just making a covenant and not requiring a covenant keeper. What's happening, I'm fast-forwarding into Christianity a bit here, what you see is what God is doing is relying upon Jesus Christ as keeping the covenant in our place. Does that make sense? 
So when, when God says, Abram, I'm giving this to you and your offspring forever, he's not saying I'm giving it to you and all your progeny only. What he's saying is I'm giving it to you and all the people who will come under the headship of Christ. So just hold that tension in mind. There's this offspring idea that are the covenant people, but what we find out later is that it misses the point that the offspring that keeps the covenant is not Abraham's children, because they can't, but rather Jesus that keeps it in their place. Is that clear, everybody? Yes or no? Yeah, sort of? You guys seem sleepy today. All right. Uh, so, verse 7, So Abram built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. What's the first thing Abram does when God says, I'm going to give you this spot? He thanks him. He builds an altar. Why would you build an altar? What do you do with an altar? You kill stuff and you, and you burn it on there, right? When you are you, uh, building an altar is a symbol of claiming something for the Lord. So when there's this land there and uh, Abram builds an altar, no matter who knows what it looked like, what it's saying is, this belongs to Yahweh, and I'm going to worship him here because this belongs to him. That's the implication. And he builds the altar there, he leaves it as a marker, and he moves on. From there he moved to the hill country, to the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. We hear about Ai later, because Joshua conquers it. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Notice something that's going on here. Abram is claiming the promised land for the Lord by building altars and worshiping God there. And then he moves on. And then he moves on. That's an important detail. He never stays, not yet anyway. He's moving to where God is telling him to go. And the point I want you to see that, how, how would that relate to the church today? Anybody have an idea? How are we supposed to always be moving? Are we supposed to be... Evangelism, right? Growing, right? Um, Rick Warren, one of the things that I, he said that I really admire, he says, uh, living things grow, right? And the church, the idea that the church is a club and that, and that expanding out and building the, club, building the church is not a priority misses the entire point. Okay, any comments or questions on this? Good point. Bob's question was, did the Israelites have altars when they were uh, wandering in the desert? And I, I answered no. Okay, this is where it gets interesting. If you're falling asleep, this is where, by the way, the Old Testament is full of racy, crazy stuff, and here's a good example. Okay, and if you thought that studying the Bible was boring, that's because you've never done it. Um, verse 10, now, there was a famine in the land. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, well, you see that again, too. That's another recurring theme. There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Sojourn, how is sojourn different from settle? Right, a sojourn is a visit. So even the word chosen there for Abram's uh, jaunt to Egypt is it's a temporary condition. He's not intending to stay there. Um, so Abram went to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Uh, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that, I may, that it may go well with me because of you, 
and that my life may be spared for your sake. What do you make of that? <laughs> Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Bad. So Abram, let me, let me tell you what's going on. They go down to Egypt. Abram says, oh man. Uh, they are going to see, Sarai, how beautiful you are. And they're going to want to take you for Pharaoh's harem. Uh, so if they know that we're married, they're going to kill me to get to you. So tell them you're my sister. Yeah. But actually... We find out later that she, I mean, she actually is his half-sister, right? She is a brother from, she's a sister from another mother. So it's actually, Abram's not actually lying. Well, it's kind of a half-truth. But he says to her, say you are my sister, and therefore it will be well with you and with me. Um, can I, let me ask you this. Does that strike you as the action of a man that you would make as one of your great heroes if you were going to make up a religion? No. What's that? No faith. no faith. Right. Here's the funny thing. Dude, Bob's got a good point. Bob said no faith. If Abram really had, if Abram was really a guy totally unlike you and I, which he's not, if Abram was really a perfect religious model, which he's not, he would have known perfectly that God would take care of him. Would he tell, us, would he tell her to go and join Pharaoh's harem? But, the, but he does. And one thing you see over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament is what you repeatedly see is the people that God picks to do the work are complete and utter failures. Did, did you hear me? The people that God chooses to do his work are nine, well, always, in fact, complete and utter failures. King David, you know who King David is? He is the apple of God's eye. He's the rock star of God's kings. He's the one who's held to be the progenitor of the Messiah. He kills the guy in order to take his wife and commit adultery with her. Well, he commits adultery, then he gets caught, and then he kills the guy's, kills her husband. So the point I want you to see here is that if you think that the God of the Bible requires you and I to be moral, to love us, you've missed the whole point. Remember, the offspring that the covenant is with is between God and this yet unknown individual. Abram has faith but Abram, like you, and like I, and like everybody you know, is a fallen sinner, and he will make mistakes. But God's promises to Abram are not contingent upon his ability to keep his end of the bargain. Does that make sense, everyone? Is that clear? This is a really radical, different way to look at religion than any other religion has ever, ever existed. Every other religion or worldview that believes in good and bad says, if you're good, then what? Good things happen. If you're bad, then bad things happen. The God of the Bible says, no, 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 no. Remember Noah? God saw that the men were evil from their birth. He says he knows that we will make mistakes, and yet he has provided an offspring to keep the covenant with in our place. It's still a mystery to Abram who that offspring is, but you and I know. We see this again, actually, uh, another time with Abram, and another time, um, let's see, we see it later on. In, um, with Abram and, and also with one of the other kings passing off their, their wife as their sister to try to save their own hide. Not exactly a high watermark in, in uh, church life. Any comments on that? Do you, um, you know, any of your friends ever say to you, oh, I would go to church, but it's just, it's just full of hypocrites and people that just do the wrong thing. You ever heard that before? Yeah. Whenever anybody ever says to you the church is full of hypocrites, you know what I always say to them? I say, you know what? Being a hypocrite is the only mark 
how I, I just say, uh, being a hypocrite is a charge which is always true. <laughs> so when someone says to you, oh, the church is full of hypocrites, say, yeah, sure is. Come on. <laughs> That's right. The point I'm trying to make is that, the, that Christianity is not a, not a religion about being morally rigorous to earn your salvation. It is, a, it is a religion about being morally rigorous and thanksgiving for it. It's a we'll get to that later. But the point I want you to see here is that if people, a lot of people get turned off from religion, they think, because they look at you as hypocrites, and they're right. Nobody in here, including me, is some, we all make mistakes, we're all sinners, we all fall short, amen? So the charge of hypocrisy is always true, always true. So next time somebody says that, you say, you're exactly right. Why don't you come and join us? You'll be right at home. <laughs> it's true. And, that, and, and Abram's a great example of that. He's supposed to be this superstar rock star guy, the guy that Abram chose, the, the guy that God, Abram is the man that God chose, and he passes off his wife as his sister. Yes, does somebody have a comment? Any comments or questions on that? Anybody ever heard from somebody that they think Christians are hypocrites? Yeah. They don't understand what Christianity is all about. That's the problem. They, um, every other worldview says you're good if you do good things. It's not true about the gospel. It's not true about the Old Testament either, as you, as you see if you look at it closely. Any observations, comments, questions, funny stories that might relate to this? Father? Yes? Yeah, I got a kind of a parallel theme on that. Uh, an army uh, chaplain, a uh, friend of mine, who was uh, having the uh, uh, rabbi, was asked, uh, is there any situation uh, where a Jewish soldier is a prisoner? Is it all right for him to eat pork? And the rabbi said, yes, absolutely. He said, because the main thing is to keep life and have life on board. So you can do wrong things to that's a good point. I mean, the, yeah, the point is when, when I, I would never argue, I mean, again, we're not, we're not bound by the Jewish food laws either, so it's a little bit of a different nuance, but um, to do, let us do, uh, to do something wrong so that grace may abound is, Paul's a little bit, is pretty strong on that, but the point, the, the more important point to see, I think, Father, to your point, is that even though you and I and Abram uh, and St. Peter and St. Paul and the whole shabliel of people in the Old Testament, Old and New Testament are sinners, God still can work through that. Does that make sense? And the reason is because the offspring that the covenant is with is not you at all. Okay, um, let's look at this. So verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. That's his wife. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. Hey, Pharaoh, you're not going to believe what we found. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Could you imagine? Well, anyway. And for her sake, he dealt with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. What is verse 16 telling you? What are all these things, the sheep, oxen, slaves, donkeys, camels, What's all that for? It's to pay for Sarah. It's a dowry. So he says, Abram, your sister, man, she's really, let me hear. And he gives him all this stuff. What did God say? You will be a, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. Right? Does Abram get blessed? Yes. Does Abram do the wrong thing? Yes, but God still blesses him because God promised him that he would. 
And so Abram, despite the fact that what he does is shameful and wrong, God still provides blessing to him because God is faithful. Um, and look at verse 17. Here's an interesting little nugget here. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Let her and take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Isn't that something? The Bible is, look at, I mean, if you're going to make this stuff up, you wouldn't make it up like this. Right? Here's Pharaoh, who claims to be a god, right? Who claims to be the god of the sun. He is now criticizing Abram, rightly, for doing something, an egregious sin. The, point I want you to, the, the thing I want you to see in all this is that, is that God continues to be gracious to Abram, despite the fact that what he does is wrong. Any comments? Why? Why does he continue to? Two reasons. He promised him that he would. He created a covenant with him. And did you, we don't know yet why, but I'll, Abram doesn't know yet why, but I'll tell you why. God says he makes a covenant with Abram, right, and his offspring. And again, the offspring is not Abram's kids, it's this individual, this Jesus. So the point being that the, the person who has to keep all the rules is not Abram, but this other being who has not yet been identified, who we now know as Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? The, all the, put it this way. When we say that Jesus Christ dies for your sins on the cross, you've heard that before, right? As a Christian, what we're saying is that all the punishment for the things you do wrong and that I do wrong, the fact that you hand off your wife as your sister, for example, you don't bear the consequences of those actions if you are a Christian because Jesus has borne them for you. So it's not that God is just turning a blind eye to evil and sin and wickedness, whether it's Abram's or yours or mine. But what, the, what Christianity says is the person that pays for the sin is actually Jesus on the cross. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Um, we're we're going to see this really clearly uh, next time with the covenant that God makes with Abram. That's a really cool story. Um, anything else? So they went away. Oh, notice here too, God gives Abram blessing. We see this recur... We see a recurring theme, another one, another meta-narrative thread, that when the, Egypt, when the Israelites leave Egypt, right? Let my people go, when Moses pulls them out. Not only do they leave Egypt, they leave Egypt and they take all their stuff with them. You know, when God has the plagues, let my people go, and then plague number two and plague number three, by the time it's all said and done, Pharaoh then, a different Pharaoh, but same position of authority, says, just get them out of here. And they take all their stuff. Just like Pharaoh says to Abram, what have you done, dude? Just get these people out of here because their God is causing all this suffering. And to give them whatever they want. God provides blessing for his covenant people just because he's God and because he can. And the important thing here to learn is God's unmerited grace towards Abram and towards you and I. There's very, uh, God, uh, Jim's point points a good one. There's no criticism of Abram from, of, from God, but there is from Pharaoh. I would argue, uh, I mean, Abram knows that what he did was wrong because Pharaoh makes a, the obvious point. Dude, what are you doing? 
and God has visited punishment on Pharaoh for doing this very thing. That's actually an important detail I wanted to make, that, um, and it's an obvious one, but that sometimes our mistakes have impacts on other people, right? We all know that's true. Or other people on us. So Abram's choice is a poor one, uh, but it impacts Pharaoh and his household. But clearly, what God is doing is using Pharaoh as a mouthpiece for criticizing Abram and what he's done. That's another interesting nuance in the text, because Pharaoh, as you know, in Egyptian uh, uh, religion, Pharaoh's a god. But in this context, the true god of the Old Testament, Yahweh, is using Pharaoh as his mouthpiece. So you see that theme over and over again, too, where God uses the so you know, so-called gods of this world to do his bidding. Anyway, anybody change? You see something from a different perspective today? Um, you learn anything? Any comments or observations? We've got a few minutes if you have any questions for me so far. Yes, sure. That's a good question. The question was, how did Pharaoh figure out that Sarah was his wife? And the answer is, I don't know. Uh, presumably, as his family was being afflicted with plagues and things were falling apart, they're like, wait a minute, nothing happened until she got here. And maybe she told him. I, don't, I really don't know. She must have told him. I don't, but that's a good question. Um, how did, how did Pharaoh know? Or one of the, somebody, yeah, somebody clearly, somebody, yeah, right, one of the other wives maybe did. I don't know. Oh, they do that sometimes. In any event, uh, that's it. So, um, any other ops, questions or comments? So, anyway, the big takeaway from this is that God is a God of covenants. He is a God who wants us to be obedient and act. Faith is a verb, not a noun. And that even if we blow it, uh, there may be consequences, as you saw with Pharaoh's family, on other people, absolutely, or consequences on our own lives, absolutely. However, in terms of uh, your goodness before God, that is not determined by your behavior. It's determined by Jesus' behavior in your place. An important caveat on that is this, though. Let me say this, that once you are saved, once you've claimed Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, Paul... Uh, Paul essentially says, you know, bear fruit, act like it, right? Act like it. You're not off the hook. <laughs> uh, you're not off the hook, neither am I. But, what, but the point being that even if you blow it, there is salvation, but you need to act differently because God has changed you. We'll get to that in the New Testament as well. All right, anything else? All right, friends, uh, next week is, what's ver, uh, chapter, verse, section 7? Anybody have a little card there? I, didn't, I meant to write it down and I forgot. Sorry about that. God's covenant with Abram. So that, and that's what? Chap, chapter, chapter 15. It's chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. This is, you will see, you know, those of you who are curious about this whole covenant idea and what's, what's going on here, why does Abram not get killed for what he's done, for example, uh, just hang on to that tension. Because next week when we get to Genesis 15, 1 through 21, you'll see it very clearly that this, how this covenant works. It's really cool. And you'll see clearly that the covenant points to uh, somebody who is yet unnamed to Abram, but his name is Jesus, <laughs> who keeps the covenant in our place. So come to, if you're up, next week will be the last one, but let me encourage you to come to that one because it's a, it's a biggie. And it's uh, important in terms of how salvation history works. Paul uses it uh, 
referring to uh, Christ in the New Testament. So, anything else? What did, uh, Bob's question is, what did Egypt do to always receive God's wrath? Well, Pharaoh claimed to be God. And so ordinarily, when you see, when you see God really getting, like in the plagues, it's because God, the true God, and Pharaoh, who claims to be God, uh, basically God's putting him in his place. So, all right, if that's it, why don't we close in prayer? The Lord be with you. Father, we thank you for your word, which challenges us. We thank you, Lord, for Abram, for his... Uh, the example of his faith and also the example of his weakness and your grace in the midst of it. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the challenge you place before us and also the comfort knowing that even when we fail you, uh, you are still faithful to us. Um, we pray, Lord, for you to send us to our homes and our families today, uh, thankful for the covenant you have made uh, with your Abram's offspring, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. And help us to always trust in that covenant for our own salvation. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, we ask that you like, subscribe, or share this message. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity Episcopal Church, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.